You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 147, Kidnapping General Prescott. This week, I'm stepping away from events in upstate New York to take a look at another important event that was happening at the same time. Back in episode 119, I talked about how the British seized Newport, Rhode Island in late 1776. General William Howe wanted a saltwater port for his brother, Admiral Richard Howe's naval fleet. They were concerned that New York Harbor might freeze over during the winter and lock in some of the ships. By moving much of the fleet to Newport, they could be assured of continued access by water over the winter. General Howe assigned his second-in-command, General Henry Clinton, to capture Newport. At the time, Howe and Clinton were fighting constantly over strategic and tactical decisions regarding the campaign to push Washington and the Continentals out of the New York City area. Clinton had been requesting an independent command for months, and Howe saw this as an excuse to push Clinton aside. Clinton took command of the army that would capture Newport, and General Cornwallis got command of the army that chased Washington across New Jersey. Clinton, of course, saw this for what it was, a chance to push him aside. Clinton was already paranoid that everyone blamed him for the failure to capture Fort Sullivan in Charleston, South Carolina, before the New York campaign began. Clinton desperately wanted an important command like that given to his junior, Lord Cornwallis. But Howe was not going to give him that. Instead, once Clinton took Newport without any real opposition, Howe started sending him letters asking why he was not using his army more actively to take more of Rhode Island. Of course, Howe knew why. He had not given Clinton nearly enough soldiers to capture larger areas of land without putting those outposts at risk. New England was considered the most hostile region in America. Setting up isolated outposts would only invite attack. But Clinton had been chiding Howe for months for not being aggressive enough, and Howe saw this as a chance for some payback. Clinton saw the assignment as a career dead end. He was stuck in an unimportant outpost while other generals were engaging with the enemy and capturing New Jersey. His boss, General Howe, was clearly creating a paper trail to show that Clinton was a do-nothing general who just sat around Newport. If Clinton did try to get more aggressive and lost a major outpost, he would be savaged for being careless with his soldiers and only justify General Howe's caution in the New York campaign. In response to all this, Clinton simply packed up and went home. A few months after taking Newport, Clinton boarded a ship and went back to London to resign his commission. 
command of Newport then fell to his second-in-command, Lieutenant General Lord Percy. You may recall General Percy had rescued the British column marching back from Concord back in 1775. Percy had distinguished himself in the New York campaign, but as a Clinton ally, General Howe was pleased to push him off with Clinton into the Newport backwater, where his career would also be stifled. So, a few months after taking command from Clinton and receiving letters from General Howe needling him for doing nothing in Newport, General Percy also boarded a ship for London and went back to resign his command. General Percy's departure in the spring of 1777 left Brigadier General Richard Prescott in charge of the army at Newport. Prescott, by the way, is of no relation to William and Oliver Prescott, two patriot leaders in Massachusetts, nor does he appear to be any close relation to General Robert Prescott, who was serving as a colonel under Lord Howe at this time. When General Prescott took command in Newport, he was already in his 50s. Although he would eventually rise to the rank of lieutenant general, I cannot find much information about his early years. Most summaries of his life start off when he was about 31 years old and already a major in the army. Given his rise through the ranks, he must have been considered a capable officer, and since his rise was not particularly speedy, he probably did not come from a family of great wealth or social prominence. Prescott did have a reputation for being bad-tempered, and definitely was not one of those British leaders who secretly sympathized with the American cause. After the British captured Ethan Allen in late 1775, Prescott took custody of the prisoner. He did not treat Allen as a captured enemy officer, but rather as a criminal guilty of rebellion against the king. He slapped Allen in chains and shipped him off to London for trial. A couple of months later, Prescott was serving under General Guy Carleton in Canada when the Americans invaded under General Richard Montgomery and Colonel Benedict Arnold. You may recall a story I told back in episode 78. I described an incident where the Americans captured most of the British army while it was attempting to retreat from Montreal back to Quebec. The commanding general, Guy Carleton, managed to escape from the command ship in disguise and made his way back to Quebec, leaving the rest of his army to be captured. Command of that army, once Carleton left, fell to none other than General Richard Prescott, the man who had such disdain for captured American officers, now found himself a prisoner of those American rebels. The Americans were well aware of Prescott's treatment of Ethan Allen and were happy to return the favor by clapping the general in irons and throwing him into a jail cell. They held Prescott as a prisoner for about 10 months. In September 1776, they exchanged him for General John Sullivan, who had been captured by the British at the Battle of Long Island. A few months after his return to duty, Prescott joined General Clinton's expedition to capture Newport, Rhode Island. After Generals Clinton and Percy left for London, General Prescott found himself in command of the army beginning around May 1777. Prescott's time as an American prisoner had done nothing to endear him to the local population. Part of Prescott's responsibilities was to obtain supplies for both his own army and for General Howe's army in New York. 
Prescott established quotas for area farms to come up with the needed goods and extracted draconian punishments on those who failed to meet their quotas. He demanded locals show him and his men the respect accorded British officers, going so far as to force local Quakers to salute his officers, even though it violated their religious beliefs to do so. There's even a story of his ordering a civilian to receive 300 lashes for refusing to help soldiers to move a cannon. The British chose the town of Newport, Rhode Island, to become the naval port not only because of its good defenses and saltwater ports, but because it was thought to be one of the least hostile areas in New England. Large parts of the population were Quakers, who tended to submit to British rule. But even if local hostility did not rise to the level it might in Connecticut or Massachusetts, there was a large and active Patriot militia movement in Rhode Island that was certainly not happy about the British occupation. With perhaps 10,000 soldiers and sailors occupying the area around Newport, including numerous warships in the harbor, the locals had no realistic chance of expelling their British occupiers. The town of Newport sits on an island, which protected the British garrison from any land attack. The waters around the island were filled with British warships, which deterred any attack by sea. Although the Patriots still controlled the rest of Rhode Island, the British occupation of Newport seemed secure. Rhode Island Patriots raised and trained militia units to be ready for an opportunity to present itself, but there seemed to be no chance of doing anything as long as the Continental Army did not make the liberation of Newport a priority. General Prescott felt so secure that he opted to move out of downtown Newport and requisitioned a country farmhouse of a Quaker by the name of Henry John Overing, who lived a few miles north of town. The house was still on Aquanac Island, the same island as Newport, and well within the control of the British occupation force. It was in between the town of Newport, where Prescott worked each day, and the military camp on the northern tip of the island, where the army kept on alert for attack from the American mainland. Prescott kept a guard of ten soldiers who occupied the house next door and who maintained a single guard at his front door at all times. Prescott also kept a squad of dragoons in the house next door on the other side to use as messengers. As the Overing farm was a fairly large one, both next-door neighbors were several hundred yards away. Because the British only occupied a few islands around Newport, the Patriots maintained control of most of the state. The Patriots deployed a 6,000-man army comprised of both Rhode Island and Massachusetts soldiers to deter the British from launching an attack against the rest of the state. Most of these soldiers were militia, but Rhode Island also had its own state army of longer-term soldiers. These men were similar to Continentals, but they were completely under the authority of the Rhode Island state government. After a few months, most of the militia went home, as it did not appear that the British planned any further invasions. Further, General Howe recalled 3,000 British soldiers from Rhode Island to reinforce his armies elsewhere. The remaining Rhode Island soldiers satisfied themselves with launching occasional small raids against the British, sometimes capturing or killing a few guards along the coast. 
Rhode Island offered rewards for the capture of any enemies, depending on rank, ranging from $20 for a private to $1,000 for a general. These raids served as reminders to the British that they still faced an actively hostile population and had to remain on guard. Among the Patriot soldiers manning the front lines was Lieutenant Colonel William Barton. A hatter by trade, Barton had joined the Army in 1775 as a corporal, but quickly became an officer and rose through the ranks. Barton was in the Rhode Island Army, not the militia. He was stationed at Tiverton, just across the Seconic Channel from the British garrison at the northern tip of Aquidneck Island. Like many Americans, Barton was disheartened to learn about the British capture of General Charles Lee in December 1776. Lee had before visited Rhode Island and was regarded as the best officer in the Continental Army. Over the next few months, Colonel Barton developed a plan to kidnap General Prescott in hopes of exchanging him for Major General Lee. In June 1777, Barton received intelligence from a slave who had escaped from Aquidneck Island that Prescott slept in the Overing House each night. A few days later, a British deserter confirmed the information. Barton was familiar with the location of the Overing House, having been stationed near it before the British invasion. Barton proposed a small squad of whaleboats would row across the bay at night, grab Prescott, and return with the prisoner before the British were alerted. It was an extremely high-risk plan. The British maintained many patrols both on land and in the surrounding waters at night. If even one person spotted them and sounded an alarm, they would almost certainly be killed or captured. Barton knew secrecy was the key to his plan. He told his commanding officer, a few other select leaders also were informed, including the governor of Rhode Island, but largely the plan remained on a need-to-know basis. He asked five of his regimental officers to volunteer for what he described as a dangerous mission, but would give no details. The officers obtained the five necessary whaleboats for the mission. Shortly before the raid, he asked for 40 volunteers from his regiment, again saying it was for a dangerous mission, but giving no details. Every man in the regiment stepped forward to volunteer, so Barton had to select 40 men who he knew to be fit and experienced rowers. At least four were former Aquidneck residents who would serve as guides. Since most of the earlier raids had taken place on the eastern side of Aquidneck Island, and because the Overing House was closer to the western side, Barton opted to launch his raid from the west. On the night of July 4th, as the Rhode Islanders distracted the British with an Independence Day celebration of cannon fire, Barton's five whaleboats made their way to Bristol and then over to Hog Island, just northwest of Aquidneck. It was only then that he informed the officers and men of the details of his plan. With too many British ships in Narragansett Bay, Barton moved his whaleboats further west to Warwick on the night of July 6th. Instead of a short row across to Aquidneck, the team would make a longer trip along the west coast of Prudence Island. This was a much longer route, but would keep them more than a mile away from any British warships, and would allow them to use the island as a screen from any British lookouts. 
continued planning, and poor weather left the team waiting until July 10th. During that time, Barton tracked the patterns of the British patrol boats in the bay. Barton gave his final instructions to his men. Strictly follow orders, keep quiet at all times, don't bring any liquor, and refrain from any looting. The boats had to row 10 miles in the dark. Barton put a pole with a white rag at the top so that the other boats could identify the lead boat. The men used muffled oars and benefited from a cloudy night. As they moved through the water, they could hear British patrols shouting, All's well, to each other across the bay. By about 11.30 p.m., the boats landed at Aquidneck Island. The team left five men, one with each of the boats, and then proceeded to make the one-mile march to the Overing House in about 20 minutes. At the house, the unit divided into five groups as planned. Three of them would surround three sides of the house, while a fourth, commanded by Barton, would enter through the front door. The fifth group acted as a reserve in case needed anywhere. As Barton approached the front door just before midnight, the sentry called out for him to identify himself. Barton eventually shouted out that they were friends. The sentry then asked for the countersign, in other words, the password, to identify that they were really British soldiers. Barton, still approaching, said that they did not have it, but asked if he had seen any deserters that night. By that time, Barton's team was close enough to grab the sentry's musket and threaten him with death if he made a sound. Next, the group found that the front door was locked. According to legend, one of the soldiers, an African-American, rushed forward and bashed down the door with his head. Inside, the team quickly found Overing and his son, but could not locate General Prescott. When Barton threatened to burn down the house, a voice called out. The soldiers rushed to the room, finding a man sitting on the bed, still groggy and in his nightclothes. Barton asked if he was General Prescott. He responded, yes, sir. Barton said, you are my prisoner. And Prescott replied, I acknowledge it. Barton's aide, Lieutenant William Barrington, heard the noise and attempted to slip out his bedroom window. Barrington had been taken prisoner with Barton back in 1775 and had no desire to repeat the experience. Unfortunately for Barrington, one of Barton's teams was waiting outside that window and took him prisoner anyway. The teams collected Prescott, Barrington, and the sentry. They attempted to take Overing and his son as well, but when the two put up a struggle, they decided they were not worth the hassle and left the Tories behind. They were focused on getting Prescott back to the boats. Prescott and Barrington were still in their night clothes and barefoot. When Prescott complained that his feet were hurt while walking over the rough ground, the team simply picked him up and carried him. The entire time inside the house had taken only about seven minutes. It was still about midnight when the team began its march back to the boats. Back at the Overing house, an undetected dragoon who had been sleeping at the house dashed a quarter mile to the guard house to alert the guards. But when challenged, he thought the sentry who was challenging him was an American, so he ran back to the Overing house without giving the news. Shortly after, a slave from the Overing house did alert the guard. The guard then jumped on a horse and galloped two miles to the British camp at the north to raise an alarm. 
The British first assumed that the raiders had come from the east, where most of the earlier raids had originated. They searched along the east coast of Aquidneck Island, but found nothing. It wasn't until around 2 a.m. that they considered that the raiders may have escaped across Narragansett Bay to the west. They fired alarm rockets to alert the Navy ships. But the Navy officers did not know what the alarm was about. By the time they launched a boat to go to Aquidneck Island, learn of the kidnapping, and return to the ship, it was already 4 a.m., and the raiders were already back in Warwick. The entire raid had taken about six and a half hours. General Prescott's kidnapping surprised everyone. Americans were delighted while the British were shocked. Colonel Barton became an instant hero. The Continental Congress sent him congratulations and promised him a ceremonial sword, one of three issued to officers outside the Continental Army during the war. Several months later, Congress also commissioned Barton as a full colonel in the Continental Army. Barton's team received a reward of $1,120 from the Rhode Island legislature. $1,000 for the capture of the general, $100 for Lieutenant Barton, and $20 for the sentry. Barrington was also the nephew of British Secretary of War Lord Barrington, making him a particularly valuable prize. It turns out the British sentry was not exactly the loyalist British subject. He had attempted to desert the army several times prior, and apparently took this opportunity to leave the British army and start a new life in America. He was locked up for a time in exchange for another prisoner. However, during the exchange, he simply disappeared and never showed up at the British camp. General Prescott and Lieutenant Barrington were moved to Providence. Prescott accepted his situation as a prisoner and signed a parole agreement not to try to escape. Later, the Americans moved him to Lebanon, Connecticut, where it would be harder for the British to launch a raid to recapture him. At first, the Americans planned to give him free reign of the town, as they did other officers, but General Washington ordered that Prescott be locked up. This was in retaliation for the way the British kept General Lee locked up and refused to allow him free reign as a prisoner in New York. Almost immediately, General Washington reached out to General Howe to discuss exchanging Prescott for Lee. But Howe was in no hurry. He thought Lee was a more valuable prisoner, that it was not clear if the Americans would even honor the exchange, and he was still unclear on whether London considered Lee a prisoner of war or a deserter. By December 1777, Howe received word from London that he could treat Lee as a prisoner of war. Lee was given parole to move about New York City. Prescott then received the same privileges in Connecticut. It would still take nearly a year for the two sides to agree on an exchange of prisoners. Prescott and Lee would both rejoin their respective armies in the spring of 1778. In Newport, Brigadier General Francis Smith took command of the British Army there. He immediately increased security to prevent further raids. A short time later, General Howe sent Major General Robert Pigeot to become the fifth commander of this post in less than a year. In London, Prescott became the butt of jokes. This was the second time he had been taken prisoner by the Americans. Rumors circulated that he had been caught in bed with the farmer's daughter and carried away naked. This, of course, was not true, but rumors die hard. 
More significant was the charge that he had been negligent in taking quarters away from the army and was prone to attack. Prescott faced a court-martial upon return to the army. His fellow officers agreed that he was more unlucky than negligent. His choice of housing on a secure island between his two armed military camps was a reasonable decision, one similar to made by commanders before and after him. He was acquitted and returned to duty. During his captivity, London promoted him to Major General. Before that, he had only held the temporary rank of Major General in America. General Lee would also return to Continental duty as well, but that, of course, is a topic for a future episode. Next week, we're going to return to upstate New York, where General Burgoyne must contend with the murder of Jane McRae. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. I want to say thanks this week to Mike Hager for his continued support of the show on Patreon. Mike is a member of the Robert Morris Circle, which is among the podcast's top supporters. I really appreciate him going above and beyond to help me cover the costs of running this podcast. This week's subject was a relatively minor event that often gets forgotten among the other events of 1777. I think it's an interesting one, though, because it was something that was the brainchild of one guy who was not a top military commander, and not even in the Continental Army at the time. It shows how the Revolutionary War was really impacted by men who were self-starters, and were willing to use creative thinking combined with daring action to change the course of the war. It was not necessarily a war led by leaders, it was a popular war. Colonel William Barton is one of those interesting one-hit wonders who does not get much coverage. He did do a few other things during the war, but he would always be known for his capture of General Prescott. I mentioned in the main episode that Barton received a commission in the Continental Army. However, he never actually received a combat command and simply remained in Rhode Island. He continued to hold that rank until the end of the war, but was wounded in a fight in 1778 and never went back on active duty. I also noted that Congress had awarded him a ceremonial sword. Although they awarded it to him in 1777, they did not actually get around to giving him the sword until 1786. After the war, Barton served as Adjutant General of the State Militia and also served in the House of Deputies. 
1790, he was given the honor of riding to New York to inform Congress that Rhode Island had finally ratified the Constitution. After that, though, Martin's life kind of drifted off course. As a veteran officer, he was entitled to claim free land in Vermont. Barton formed a group that settled in what became the town of Barton, Vermont. He ended up selling some of the land, which others later claimed he did not have proper title. After many years of fighting over the issue, he ended up losing a court case that took place in nearby Danville. Barton's share of the damages came to $272. Since Barton considered the verdict unjust, the stubborn old man, now in his 60s, refused to pay. The court did not have a debtor's prison, so it simply ordered Barton not to go more than a mile outside the town limits of Danville until he paid up. Barton took up residence in the local inn at Danville, and he remained there, confined to town by the court, for the next 13 years. In 1824, another hero of the Revolution, the Marquis de Lafayette, returned to the area as part of a nationwide tour. Lafayette remembered Barton's famous raid and sent payment to the court to pay off his debt. With that, the 77-year-old Barton was finally free to go. He returned home and lived another six years before dying in relative obscurity. My book recommendation this week is one that focuses on Barton's capture of General Prescott. It's called Kidnapping the Enemy, The Special Operations to Capture Generals Charles Lee and Richard Prescott by Christian McBurney. As the title suggests, it takes a close look at the British operation to capture General Lee as well as the American effort to capture General Prescott. The two operations both affected the course of the war in ways that even the participants could not appreciate at the time. The book covers not only the raids themselves, but gives some details on the people who participated in the raids and what happened to them after the events unfolded, hence the story I just told about Barton's later years. It gives an interesting insight about some players who did not exactly go on to lead the new nation. The book, First published in 2013 is about 300 pages, not counting notes and index. I found it to be a relaxed and interesting read, which is a pleasant surprise considering the author's day job is a DC tax attorney. McBurney, though, clearly has a love of the subject. He's written at least seven history books, all of which involved the Revolution or Rhode Island. He's also written numerous articles for the Journal of the American Revolution, as well as other publications. A disturbing number of those also involve various Revolutionary War kidnapping conspiracies. In summary, if you have read too many Revolutionary War books covering the same old topics from a slightly different angle, Kidnapping the Enemy is a welcome break into a relatively uncovered topic. My online recommendation this week is for those of you who are not obsessive readers. It's a video of today's author, Christian McBurney, giving a short video lecture covering his book. The talk comes from a lunchtime lecture at the National Archives, and you can find it on YouTube by searching for Kidnapping the Enemy. As always, I've included a direct link to it on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. 
The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.